Welcome to Taiwan Talk. I'm your host, Alex Lewis. This week, we talk to my friend Lauren Chang, who is an associate professor of space science at the National Central University. Lauren and the university are doing big things, building cutting-edge space technology and starting a space program from scratch. We uh, actually, this year, we got funded by the Ministry of Education to essentially build um, Taiwan's first university space center. So we want to build an entire center that can do science, engineering, and operations, and also build an aerospace engineering program at National Central University um, to uh, to um, essentially uh, complement that. Lauren is a busy man. He came into the studios at 9:45 a.m. already on his third cup of coffee to tell me more about his work. Besides the uh, teaching part, uh, we also work on uh, building satellites for uh, science missions and uh, analyzing the data, operating them while they're up there. And this is a really good learning opportunity for students to pick up spacecraft systems engineering and also just understand operationally what has to go into uh, maintaining a satellite system and then making use of the data. So it's really good hands-on learning th- opportunity. So let's talk about the the trips that you've taken. Uh, I, because we're Facebook friends, I've seen on your Facebook you're going all over the place. You're going to Singapore, you're going to like Germany and all these places. So yeah. like, is that because of uh, because of this? Well, first off, I want to apologize for increasing the uh, carbon output of humanity by a significant degree. <laughs> yeah. And uh, second, yeah. So uh, we have a lot of international collaborations with the universities in the U.S., Singapore, and India. And uh, we've also been trying to stay active on the uh, space research front. So that means um, we've been attending a lot of uh, major conferences on astronautics, like the, I just got back from Germany, the International Astronautical Congress, IAC, which is like the premier world gathering of all the major space agencies, all the major spacefaring universities and companies. And uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing to see what people are doing out there. How's that experience to go on these things and, and just being there? Well, I mean, uh, first off, uh, if you're in this field, or for me at least, uh, I'm, I've always been a space freak since I was a kid. So, you know, you walk in there and it's like, holy shit, this is, uh, I'm surrounded by, uh, by like uh, all the major space agencies, all the companies um, doing like really awesome stuff. This is like holy ground and you're just sort of in awe the entire time. Mm-hmm. And second of all, it's just a really good way of getting new ideas. You know, um, you share what you're working on, you see what other people are working on, and naturally you come up with more ideas, you discuss collaborations, figure out uh, how to get together with other people to uh, do more than either of you could um, uh, individually. And uh, how are you treated as like a Taiwanese citizen or national there? Okay. Um, well, in general, I'd say, you know, uh, being a Taiwanese citizen, it's actually traveling is not too difficult. We get visa-free entry to a lot of countries, visa-free entry to the EU. That said, though, of course, there's still some problems. Uh, for example, a lot of the international organizations working on this um, are associated with the UN in some way. And unfortunately, um, being a, from a Taiwanese university in many cases, uh, we can't gain membership, or if we do gain membership, we're classified um, as part of China, which uh, affects representation. And um, also for certain types of licensing, you know, you guys uh, run a radio station, so you guys have to be licensed with uh, uh, the NCC here in Taiwan. If we want to uh, use a radio station on a satellite, we have to be licensed with the ITU, International Telecommunications Union. And unfortunately, um, Taiwan is not a member, so we're still figuring out a way around that. These are real implications of this of our political issue. Yeah, basically, it really does affect um, you know what organizations we can join, whether we can get the required authorization for certain things. For example, some a lot of launch companies will want to make sure that you ha- you're properly licensed before they send you up. So that really does uh, affect things a lot. But what's the reputation of Taiwan like in these organizations and in the gatherings that you went to over the summer? Well, we do good science, and um, 
uh, in general, we're, uh, we're known as having a fairly solid foundation in building and operating big satellites. A growing number of our uh, universities are becoming interested in small satellites or, or making use of spacecraft platforms. So I'd say we're very much there and growing. Of course, there's more room to grow, but uh, we're generally perceived as being a pretty positive contributor. And I guess that kind of came to light with the Formosat 5 launch in August 2017. Yeah, that was really exciting for us because our university contributed um, one of the science, uh, scientific instruments on the satellite. And a lot of my colleagues working on remote sensing, basically satellite imagery analysis, they also work on the image data that the uh, spacecraft provides to, uh, for example, do work on mapping or understanding urban land use or uh, disaster relief. So uh, that was really exciting for us. Although um, one very amusing thing that... I learned, which is a little sad, is most spacecraft that are launched have to be registered with the uh, United Nations. Ours aren't. And also, most spacecraft are technically supposed to be licensed through the uh, ITU for radio communications. Ours aren't as well. So far, that hasn't been a problem, but but we've been fairly lucky because our launch providers, uh, from what I understand, haven't asked for it. Yet. Launch providers, like, are you talking about SpaceX who launched the thing? or Yeah, so basically um, these days uh, launching spacecraft is a pretty big market. So there are a lot of companies providing launch opportunities out there. So, for example, SpaceX is one, is one major company in uh, Asia. India also does a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, large satellite launches. And every time you launch a large satellite, there's usually a lot of extra space on board. So they typically bring what they call secondary payloads, a lot of small satellites that essentially sort of hitch a ride and, uh, again, help split the cost. In terms of the small satellites we're working on at our university, um, that's how we plan to go up. The lack of registration, how does that affect the, I guess, the operation of these things? Well, that does have real implications. For example, a very important part of operating a spacecraft is communications. You have to be able to track your spacecraft when it passes overhead to uh, basically download the uh, data from the spacecraft, which is which why you sent it up there in the first place. And at the same time, to also send commands commanding the spacecraft to to perform some type of action. Now, if you want to communicate with your spacecraft, then basically, from a ground station, then basically your spacecraft has to be licensed in the country with a ground station that has command authority. So, for example, if we wanted to use a ground station operated by our colleagues in the U.S., then in addition to being licensed in Taiwan, our spacecraft would have to be licensed in the U.S. as well. The problem is, if you want to be licensed in the U.S., then you have to get the international licensing that we uh, have difficulty obtaining. So what's the workaround here? And also, like, is there? Do you think? Do you see an end in sight? Well, we're we're uh, trying to figure out many different ways. I mean, I guess the closest analogy I can think of would be ship registration. For example, if you go to any seaport, you go to Geelong, you're going to see a lot of ships flagged in countries that they actually are not from. For example, you'll see a lot from Panama, but even you'll see ships registered in, for example, of all places, Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Now they do it for advantageous tax reasons, but uh, there is a possibility that we may have to. Uh, essentially register our uh, spacecraft in another country, unfortunately. The other workaround is we find a launch provider that doesn't ask for licensing. And if that's the case, then, of course, we have to rely solely on our own ground stations, which means uh, we have to work on building, getting that up and running um, soon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so do we not have a lot of ground stations here in Taiwan? We have quite a few, actually, operated by NSPO, our National Space Agency. But those are mostly uh, tasked with uh, tracking and communications with NSPO's own satellites. So we would really prefer to uh, build our own to basically ensure that we don't interfere with their operations. At the same time, being able to work on the design and construction of a satellite ground station is also a very good opportunity for our students to learn a lot about electrical engineering and telecommunications. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned students again. Let's talk about the students. Uh, what's the education system like here? Like, what's the, I guess, the talent that we're working with in Taiwan? Well, Taiwanese students are uh, 
tend to be uh, very well prepared in terms of uh, math and science. Um, the education system here has changed a fair amount since I went through it uh, close to, oh, wow, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think compared to uh, what I went through, there's a lot more flexibility. You tend to have teachers who are more interested in really conveying their interest and passion for a subject compared to what I went through, which was a lot of lots and lots of exams piled on top of exams, piled on top of exams spiced with, you know, uh, a couple of lashings if you didn't do well in the exams. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I think there's there's uh, signs of improvement there. Of course, we could always, uh, and I hope we will always try and do better. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, students are prepared. And uh, in recent years, we've been able to get more and more students who are actually interested in the field. A lot of times, if you ask uh, undergraduates here um, why they uh, pick their major at their university, a lot of times the answer you get is, well, because it's what I tested into. And uh, I think perhaps compared to... Uh, Students say um, elsewhere uh, there seems to be a higher proportion here that uh, don't pick their majors based on what they're interested in, but simply based on what their scores were. Now, of course, that's gradually changing, and I'm very hopeful about that. And uh, I think it's, um, you know, if we can get students who are really competent and at the same time really interested, have real passion for the subject, then, you know, it works out great for everyone. Yeah, it's best for everybody involved. Absolutely. Yes. And it's uh, much less infuriating if you're an instructor. I can imagine, yeah. How do you like teaching at the university, sir? Well, um, I think uh, it's been a pretty interesting experience picking it up as I went along. No one actually taught me to be a teacher. Um, Like a lot of university faculties, you sort of uh, learn as you go along through your own education, and uh, hopefully you pick up what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And one thing, we've all been students, and uh, as students, we can all tell when a professor is prepared and interested and when when they aren't. So I guess I try and... I try not to be the sort of professor I would have hated. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, no lashings in your class. No lashings in my class. That's, uh, that, that's you know, it's given the class size, that's sort of um, impractical. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah, so um, in general, it's what I try to do is uh, one thing I find that really helps is rather than, you know, start by saying, okay, this is what we're going to learn in class today and blah, 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 blah. And then finally, at the end, maybe one or two words on, oh, and this is where it's actually used. Sometimes I think it's really important that we sort of switch the order around. You start by telling the students why you need something, or better yet, asking them, well, can you envision a particular need in a particular situation? So students go in knowing that, okay, so what all this theory that I'm about to learn actually has a use, and it can be a pretty important use, so uh, it's all the more uh, reason to uh, you know pick it up and figure out what it is because I might actually use this. It's not just something that you see at the exam and then after that it's all over. Yeah, it's not just some sort of theoretical thing. Yeah, and I think you know that being able to have hands-on projects where students are actually able to um, have the opportunity to uh, design or analyze or operate a particular system or instrument that really helps. Yeah, so uh, speak more on that. Like, do all of the students go through that sort of, uh, I guess, internship or anything? Or is it kind of just select students that apply to these certain uh, posts? Well, um, I figure uh, for something like this, it does require a fair amount of commitment in terms of time and energy on the student's part. So I think it has to be voluntary. So in general, if a student is interested, they'll typically uh, come and talk talk to me, say, hey, professor, I'm sort of interested in... uh, in uh, maybe what you're working on in the lab. Um, could I uh, take on a few tasks? And uh, then in general, if they ask, uh, I generally give them the opportunity or refer them to another professor who might have a project more in line with uh, what they're interested in. Okay. And then, um, of course, once they decide to take it on seriously, then, of course, we pay them. 
And of course, there, there's a higher level of commitment expected. Right, of course. Uh, and how many students do you have working, I guess, on one of your projects right now, or your well, projects in general? Well, um, for, for example, a uh, small satellite mission that we're currently working on between me and the other professors um, in my department who are also working on it, we probably have something close to about 20 students working on it okay. at various levels. One complicated thing about, though, is in general, ideally, if you're a student, that's a temporary thing in your life. So uh, one uh, major challenge of running a uh, design project or operational project with students is, uh, well, students will pick up experience, but um, you're going to expect a heavy turnaround uh, in your workforce every two years or so. Mm -hmm. So uh, oftentimes you have to figure out a way of making sure that some of the expertise that's been built up doesn't get lost, that there has to be some type of continuity. For every particular specialty, there has to be someone at a different stage of their career working on it and picking things up. So you don't end up with like a break in, say, some particular expertise that you need. Right, yeah. Um, how much time do you dedicate to managing, I guess, your projects versus teaching versus traveling? Well, um, it's kind of complicated because of the international collaborations we do. So a lot of uh, the satellite projects we work on involves us, um, colleagues in the U.S., colleagues in Europe, colleagues in India. And uh, trying to find a time that works for everyone is sort of a challenging issue. It's either uh, early morning here and nighttime in middle of the night there or the other way around. So one somewhat stressful is issue is basically being essentially on call almost uh, 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, yeah, can, can get to you. In terms of teaching, that varies uh, by semester. Um, ideally, I, I would teach uh, one class per semester, but in some cases, just due to teaching needs, I've had to teach three. Um, and uh, that's actually doesn't seem like a lot if you think about it in terms of uh, primary grade school. But um, actually, just as an example, most most research universities in the U.S. or Europe, uh, the typical teaching load is one per, one class per semester. So three is, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite a heavy load. Yeah, On the good. other hand, teaching is sort of an investment in the future of your team because that's how students get to know you and to know what you do, and uh, that's how you uh, essentially recruit your new workforce. Okay, so yeah, I guess there is a payoff, but there is a payoff. Yeah, a lot of work. Um, well, yeah, that's why I'm on my third cup of coffee today. Already? Yeah. We're taping this at 9.45 a.m. Uh, <laughs> that's nuts, Lauren. <laughs> but Lauren, tell me uh, about the staffing issue, like, because there are shortages of professors. Uh, tell me why is that, and uh, what are your thoughts on that? Shortage of professors? Well, um, basically, uh, there could be a lot of reasons, and probably depends a lot, depending on the university. But one particular reason could be simply just due to the fact that uh, there are only a limited number of uh, faculty slots at each university. The number of slots get allocated by uh, the Ministry of Education. And so once a slot is filled, unless a faculty member decides to leave early, retire, or resign, or in a very rare, rare case gets fired, um, essentially uh, you can't hire anyone new. Now, uh, there are ups and downs to the system, but... Uh, one issue is uh, you tend to have uh, fairly big age gaps at certain universities because, okay, so maybe they went through a hiring cycle like uh, 15, 20 years ago. So pretty much everyone is of a certain age. And then when they retire, then suddenly you have, after about 20 or 30 years, then suddenly you have a bunch of new slots. But in between, you're sort of, um, yeah, you don't really have much room for hiring. I see. Interesting. Uh, so what are the future goals and projects that you're going to work on? Well, um, currently we're working on uh, two, um, uh, two satellite uh, design missions, which are currently um, 
in uh, essentially the final uh, fabrication, integration, and test stage. So essentially, we've finished the analysis and the design of our flight models, and uh, we're currently uh, manufacturing um, some of the components that are self-developed. And uh, we're also testing and picking up uh, other components commercially off the shelf. And soon we're going to start to uh, connect them electrically and uh, start to make sure our flight software works and then everything functions as expected. Okay. And uh, we're also, um, we also have a couple more missions on the drawing board. We have a few ideas that we think uh, could be uh, quite exciting scientifically, but also in terms of development of an aerospace uh, workforce here in Taiwan. We hope to uh, develop certain types of uh, flight capability right now that uh, are not that easy, but at the same time, everyone in the field has been uh, looking at. Okay, so you're trying to make a breakthrough. We're trying to make a breakthrough. We're trying to invest in certain technologies, which are, again, high value, but, again, not very easy. Otherwise, everyone would have done that. Right, of course. Yeah. And, um, again, it really does combine our expertise in terms of systems engineering and also our understanding of the space environment, space weather. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so you said like the work in the satellites you just kind of listed. We're in the final stages, uh, and then you said a bunch of words that I don't understand. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's all right. Uh, but it does. But it, uh, my my takeaway is that there are a lot of uh, components and parts and um, like you know expertise that mm -hmm. goes into making a satellite. Uh, what is your expertise? And as like somebody who kind of runs the project, do you have to be kind of well versed in every single one? Yeah, that's complicated. Uh, complicated issue, but. Um, so yeah, you have all sorts of different technology going into a single satellite. You know, you have uh, radios, communications, an electrical power system, solar cells, um, the uh, avionics, the flight software, and of course the scientific instruments you're flying as uh, the payload. And all that has to be controlled with uh, all of that has to be connected with structure that can survive launch, and uh, also with thermal control systems to make sure nothing overheats. So that just involves a bunch of different uh, fields and specializations. So it's what we call systems engineering, basically trying to uh, be understand how the different subsystems interact with each other, um, how they might affect each other, and at the same time trying to make sure that all the individual subsystem teams can come together and build something that actually will accomplish the mission. So you have to have a fairly high-level understanding of uh, everything. Probably you're not going to know as much as someone specialized in, say, um, a particular subsystem like, say, thermal control. But you should at least know the uh, overall implications of that, what they need, and how their choices could affect everyone else. Mm. So uh, that is uh, – it definitely takes a lot of work. I guess I was fortunate enough when I was still in, in grad school to uh, have been able to participate on similar systems engineering projects, which does give you a better appreciation for all the uh, documentation and all the interaction and communication you have to have between all the different teams. Okay. Um do you have any other trips coming up? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm actually uh, flying out to Colorado um, later this week. Have a uh, So I have a uh, conference um, on a uh, science working group that uh, we're involved in. And, um, and then, uh, let's see. Then uh, December, I'll be in uh, Washington, D.C. for another conference where we're presenting some of our, our uh, scientific results. And um, next year, uh, during the summer, we typically send our students to the University of Colorado. They have a very experienced uh, space, uh, space flight lab there, Laboratory for Atmospheric and sp uh, Space Physics. And we send them there for training and also to work on the uh, final testing and uh, integration of one of our satellites. Okay, very cool. And uh, where or when do you find any free time for yourself? 
Well, um, I think I'm coming up with a rough idea of the uh, number of airport bars and restaurants and duty-free stores that uh, um, that uh, are sort of interesting to frequent. And, of course, uh, whenever I can on weekends, uh, doing trail running, hanging out with friends, and, of course, uh, most importantly, sleeping a lot. Yeah, sounds fun. All right, man. Lauren, thanks for coming in. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you to Lauren for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening. And that's it for this week's Taiwan Talk. I'm Alex Lewis. 